If you'd like to turn with me to Nahum, chapter 1. A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will all be entangled among the thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From new Nineveh has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of the one who brings good news and proclaims peace. Celebrate your festival, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. May the Lord add his blessing to his word. Hello everyone, great to have the opportunity to uh, have a bit of a look at the book of Nahum with you. Uh, don't know if it's your first time hearing a sermon on Nahum, it's certainly my first time preaching one. But anyway, we've, uh, I've recently been listening to a book uh, called Dominion, uh, which is a history of Christianity and the influence that it's had probably particularly in Europe, but really in in the whole world. Uh, It's a very big book, so I'll probably be listening to it for uh, about another year, I think, so you'll probably hear some more illustrations from it. Uh, But one of the stories that it tells in the book is that of an English monk and missionary uh, called Boniface. And Boniface was around in the first half of the 8th century, the the early 700s. He was a missionary who went from uh, the kingdom of Wessex, which is in England now, uh, down into what is now Germany and Netherlands and was seeking to take the good news of Jesus to the Germanic tribes there. 
One morning in the year 754, after a lifetime of mission work, Boniface was 79 years old at that time, uh, he had gathered a group of converts together and they were going to come and they were going to be baptised in the River Bourne. But as the sun rose on Boniface's camp that morning, uh, a fleet of uh, ships pulled up on the, the bank of the river near his camp. But it wasn't a uh, fleet of converts who had come to be baptised. It was actually a fleet of pirates who had come to attack him. Uh, the pirates uh, attacked, and as they attacked, uh, some of Boniface's colleagues drew their swords and uh, were wanting to defend themselves. But Boniface, uh, he remembered the example of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he remembered how when he, Jesus was being arrested and Peter had drawn his sword to defend Jesus, Jesus had said, no, uh, put your sword away uh, and uh, love your enemies. And so Boniface called on his fellow priests to lay down their swords. And rather than leading them in battle against the pirates, uh, he led them in prayer. Uh, he gave thanks to God. Uh, that God had brought them to the hour of their release from this life. And so he died, and they died as martyrs, uh, put to death by the cruel pirates. I know what you think of uh, the, the actions of Boniface at that point. It's certainly undeniable, isn't it, that he was seeking to follow some of the most famous and attractive teaching of Jesus. Uh, instead of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, Jesus had said, Turn the other cheek when someone attacks you. Instead of just love your neighbours and your friends and the family and the people who are good for you, Jesus had said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. These are famous teachings of Jesus. Uh, these are teachings uh, which I think many people find very admirable. But tonight we come to a part of the Bible that... Uh, seems to many people to advocate for the exact opposite of the kind of things that Jesus stood for, the kind of actions that Boniface embodied. We come to a passage that speaks not of turning the other cheek, we come to a passage that speaks of God's wrath and God's jealousy and God's vengeance. Uh, perhaps you were shocked uh, as Wendy read for us, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Maybe your heart even sank a little bit as you heard those words being read out. What have I come to hear tonight? To be honest, probably my heart sank a little bit when I, I realized that I was going to have to preach on this uh, earlier in a week. It just doesn't sound very like uh, Jesus' great teaching to turn the other cheek. Uh, it doesn't sound like Jesus when he was on the cross and being put to death. What did he pray? He prayed, uh, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And as you read uh, passages like this, it, it seems to give ammunition to people who want to discredit Christianity, people like uh, the famous atheist Richard Dawkins. He wrote in his book, The God Delusion, he wrote, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. Now, I like to think, well, Richard Dawkins just doesn't know what he's talking about. But then you come and read Nam chapter 1 and you go, well, God is jealous and proud of it. It's like right here in the second verse. It says that he is. It's how he introduces himself as a jealous and vengeful God. 
So what does this mean? What does it mean when God says that he's jealous and vengeful? How do we fit that with uh, Jesus and his teaching? Uh, how, how, how does that fit in? And what does it mean for the way that we live? Uh, if we believe in the God of Nahum, uh, what does that mean for how we treat others? Uh, should we be jealous and vengeful? Or should we be like Jesus and turn the other cheek and, uh, and love our enemies? There are some of the questions that I want us to unpack tonight as we have a look at the message of Nahum. But I think in order to really get our minds around what Nahum has to say to us tonight, we need to understand something of the context in which he is giving his message. The message of Nahum was probably given around the year 615, 612 BC, uh, and that was at the very end of the great Assyrian Empire, just before it actually was overthrown by the rising empire of Babylon. Uh, if you look in the, uh, the very first uh, verse of the book, which kind of gives the, the title or the, the, uh, the topic of the book, it says, this is a message written about Nineveh, and Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was a great world superpower of the ancient world. Uh, it had actually existed in various forms for almost a thousand years. So uh, these guys, they had been around for a long time. Uh, and uh, they had been a great power in the ancient world. About a hundred years before Nahum was bringing his message, uh, in the year 722, uh, the Assyrian Empire had marched down from the north into the kingdom of Israel, the, the northern kingdom after Israel, the people of God had split into two, and they had uh, defeated Israel in battle and totally destroyed them and scattered their people uh, throughout, the, the ancient, uh, throughout the ancient Near East. Not only had they destroyed the ancient kingdom of Israel, they had continued uh, to march south into the kingdom of Judah. Uh, their armies had come down and they had surrounded Jerusalem and had uh, been laying siege and they were a huge army and, and it looked as if uh, Jerusalem was going to fall for sure. But at the very last moment, God sent an angel and this huge army uh, just got up and left and went back to Assyria and so they were saved. But with all of this going on, you can see that the people of Judah, uh, Assyria was a big, big deal for them. They were this powerful, power-hungry, dangerous neighbor, and they were a very cruel neighbor as well. Assyrian kings were proud of the cruelty with which they treated their enemies, uh, archaeologists have discovered uh, inscriptions where the kings were boasting about the way that they had treated people, boasting of uh, beheading, skinning people, flaying people to death, burning people to death, uh, cutting off people's body parts and forcing people to die of thirst in the desert. These are the kind of things that uh, the uh, the people of Judah were facing as they, they thought about uh, the, the Assyrians and the way that they were being treated. I think it's important to understand this history as we think about the message of Nahum because uh, Nahum is a prophecy of judgment against Assyria. It's a message from God that he's about to bring uh, Nineveh uh, and the whole empire crashing down. And if you just read these, uh, these claims of judgment out of context... Well, it might sound like God is totally unreasonable and unpleasant uh, in the sense that Richard Dawkins claims. But when you know a little bit about Nineveh, you realise these guys really deserve this. They are a giant, brutal, 
unjust, power-hungry empire that has done its absolute best to destroy the people of God. When God says he's jealous, he's not saying I'm jealous in some kind of general sense of being insecure or paranoid or controlling, like when we think about jealous people that we know. He's jealous in the sense that he loves the people of Israel. They are his precious possession and the fact that somebody has come and uh, brutalized them and attacked them and sought to destroy them, that is something that makes him angry because uh, it is his beloved people. And God's vengeance, well that also is not like our human vengeance which so often is thoughtless vengeance, selfish vengeance, vengeance that uh, is, you know, completely out of proportion with the crime that somebody has supposedly committed. Uh, if you look in verse 3, you'll see that God, uh, God, Nahum actually qualifies the kind of vengeance that God has because it says, the Lord is slow to anger but great in power and He won't leave the guilty unpunished. Now, as we read that the Lord is slow to anger, it's helpful to just think a little bit about one of the other books from the Minor Prophets. Uh, it's a book we're not actually going to have a chance to look at in our series, but it's probably one you're familiar with already. It's the book of Jonah. Uh, you might know Jonah uh, was a, another prophet like Nahum, uh, and Jonah was actually sent to Nineveh to deliver a prophecy to the city. Uh, the in fact, the, the prophecy that Jonah was sent to deliver, uh, we don't have the kind of record of the, the details, but it sounds very similar to the prophecy that Nahum uh, gives because the prophecy that Jonah had to go and deliver to Nineveh was that because of their evil, God was going to destroy them. But Jonah hated Nineveh. Jonah was full of typical human vengeance and he knew what Nineveh was like and he didn't want the Word of God to get anywhere near them. He just wanted God to go in and wipe them out, not to give them a chance at all. And so rather than going and delivering the message that God wanted him to, he actually ran away. Uh, He tried to escape, uh, he jumped on a ship, uh, but God was determined that Nineveh would hear the message. And so he sent a huge storm, Uh, Jonah got thrown overboard, got into the belly of a fish, that was how much God wanted him to go to Nineveh, and eventually uh, made him go to Nineveh. Well, after Jonah finally uh, was... uh, basically forced by God to go to Nineveh, uh, he went and he preached and if you know the story, probably know what happens. The people repented when they heard God was angry. Jonah was absolutely disgusted uh, because uh, God was gracious and he didn't destroy them uh, as he was going to and Jonah want, wished that he had. You see, God is not vengeful like Jonah was. He's not vengeful in the sinful way that we are, the hypocritical way, uh, the, uh, uh, the vindictive way that we want to take vengeance on people. God is slow to anger. God is always, always ready to reconsider when people repent. The jealousy and the vengeance of God as they are portrayed in the Bible do not make him an unpleasant character. The jealousy and vengeance of God come from his passionate commitment and love for his people. 
They come from the fact that he will not let the powerful and the oppressive and the violent get away with their sins. God's jealousy and vengeance, they mean that he is to be feared uh, by those who are evil and proud and powerful. But his uh, vengeance and jealousy mean that he can be trusted by those who are weak and innocent and oppressed. God's jealousy and vengeance mean that he's not indifferent. He won't just walk by on the other side of the street when someone is having something terrible happen to them. God will not abandon his people or leave them without vindication and justice. And according to Nahum, Judah can take great comfort in this truth about God. Perhaps it doesn't sound comforting at first. Uh, the, uh, in verses 3 to 6, you'll see that the judgment of God is described. It sounds like a, a whirlwind. It uh, sounds like a Category 5 cyclone or an earth-shattering earthquake. But what is the purpose of God's judgment? Well, look in verse 7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. This little kingdom of Judah, they, they looked around the world and they felt weak and insignificant and in danger of being destroyed. The God of the whirlwind and the earthquake was their refuge. He was their cyclone shelter. He, uh, in his special covenant relationship with them, he, he guarded them jealously and he was going to take vengeance on their foes, the Assyrians who had treated them so badly. Judgment for Assyria actually means salvation for Judah. It means that they will have a place to live in peace. I look at the end of chapter 1 in verse 15. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. The judgment of God, it does sound violent and apocalyptic, but the purpose is to bring peace. Uh, it's hard for us to imagine because normally when we start wars, uh, even if they're intended to bring peace, uh, they don't really work, do they? First World War was meant to be the war that ended uh, all wars and it didn't work very well. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, we... Uh, you know, went, went into a war in Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, I think that was also meant to bring world peace but after 20 years, uh, 750,000 uh, people have been killed in those wars and uh, not much has changed uh, in the countries where they happened. But God's war on evil, it will bring peace for his people. It will bring a place for his people to live uh, and worship him without uh, evil enemies disrupting them. And that's really the key message of Nahum. As much as the book has all these messages of judgment for Assyria, uh, Nahum is, of course, uh, speaking to the people in Judah. And interestingly, Nahum's name actually means comfort, uh, which seems a bit ironic when you first read the book. It doesn't look very comforting, uh, but the message is that because evil is being judged and defeated, uh, God will provide uh, comfort for those who are uh, for, for his people and a refuge for his people. 
Now what Nahum prophesies here in you know, 615, 612, uh, it comes to pass in just a few years later. 609 BC, the Assyrian Empire is indeed overthrown, just as God says it will be here. The Babylonian Empire uh, comes uh, down and overthrows Assyria and uh, God's people do receive some vindication uh, for the cruelty uh, that they had suffered and the danger that they had lived in uh, with the Assyrians uh, on their border. But the thing is, the book of Nahum, like every book in the Old Testament, it kind of gives us God's ultimate plans in a bit of a shadowy form. It only gives us sort of a, you know, a, a grey, sketchy outline of God's final plans. Because as comforting as the downfall of Assyria was for uh, God's people for a short time, the salvation that the judgment of Nineveh brought was actually really short-lived. It uh, turns out that the people who defeated the Assyrians, Babylonians, uh, they were almost as bad as the Assyrians, almost as evil, almost as violent, uh, certainly just as power-hungry. And within 25 years of the Assyrians being overthrown, uh, the Babylonians had actually turned their greedy attention towards the little, uh, the little nation of Judah and King Nebuchadnezzar had sent his armies in and they had come and destroyed uh, Jerusalem and overthrown Judah and deported all the people back to Babylon. You see, the problem was that the reason that this had happened, that God had allowed this, is the thing that we've seen in many other prophets that we've looked at this term, it's the fact that the people of Judah themselves were just as caught up in sin and idolatry as uh, everyone else. The people of Judah themselves were just as unjust and unfaithful to God uh, in different ways as the Assyrians, even though they have a special covenant with God. And so the comfort of God's judgment on others, the comfort of thinking, well, uh, those terrible people are going to cop it from God, that is a very short-lived comfort. There's the old saying, when you point one finger at somebody else, you're pointing three back at yourself. And uh, that is a bit the case when it comes uh, to us and other people. Sin and evil they're not just an Assyrian problem, aren't they? It wasn't like that particular empire had some exclusive problem with sin. The problem of sin and evil, it was there for the Israelites and the people in Judah. The problem of sin and evil, it's there for all of us, for the whole human race. All of us have sinful hearts. Uh, all of us make our own contributions to the injustice and conflict and, uh, and uh, mess of our world. We perhaps like to exclude ourselves by, you know, thinking of people that might be a bit worse than we are, thinking that, you know, uh, our sins might be a bit more private and uh, a bit, you know, cause a bit less trouble than some other people's sins. But last week, I think we saw a classic example of how that's not the case. Uh, The fact that actually our greedy sort of consumerism and uh, and selfish indulgence uh, and the way that we spend our money and fill our wardrobes and our cupboards full of things that we don't really need, uh, that in fact down the line has this ripple effect that ends up with hundreds of thousands of people working in slavery and poverty. And it's not just the sin of greed that has that impact in our world. All sin, uh, human sin, I think, is like that. 
our anger or our prejudice or our lust, uh, you know, uh, individually, it might be a small private thing, but uh, together it becomes amplified in our world and so easily cascades into those ugly patterns of behaviour that we see in our community and our world. But in the face of this sinful world, God has a plan. He has a plan that is hinted uh, at in Nahum. He has a plan that he really will be a refuge for his people as he judges the evil of our world and creates a place for his people to live. God's plan is that he will absorb uh, the judgment for sin in himself. God's plan is that Jesus, his son, will come and die on the cross and will take the judgment in our place and so we can go to him and he will be our refuge. The Apostle Paul talks about this in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 2. Apostle Paul says, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, like Syrians, like uh, all the other people, uh, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. See, Paul says, because of Jesus, now all people from everywhere are invited to come and find refuge in Jesus. Now, no one anywhere needs to be caught like the Assyrians in the the whirlwind and the earthquake of God's justice. Now, we're all invited to repent and turn to Jesus in faith. Anyone from anywhere can be forgiven for their sins, can be welcomed in to God's peaceful kingdom forever. This is how God is going to provide a refuge. But for those who don't find refuge in Jesus, there still remains a day of judgment. The book of Revelation, uh, in a lot of ways, echoes the book of Nahum as it describes uh, God's judgment uh, on the final day. Uh, It describes the judgment of a great and evil city. In Revelation, the city is called Babylon uh, rather than Nineveh. uh, But I think in biblical terms, it's symbolic of very much the same thing. Babylon, Nineveh, uh, they are symbolic of humans joined together in sinfulness and creating injustice and violence and uh, and, and evil. And in the vision of Revelation, uh, chapter 18, we read, Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpets will never be heard of you in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. See that judgment that took place for Nineveh in the year 609 when uh, their empire was defeated. It foreshadows a final day of judgment when God will ultimately defeat uh, all evil empires that have terrorized our world and, uh, and caused so much harm. And when we look around the world and we see the kinds of great evil that happens, we can be sure that God cares about that and God will act. 
His jealousy and vengeance means that he cares deeply for us and they will not leave the evil that we see and the evil that we experience unpunished. And this is a great comfort. We live in such a tumultuous world, don't we, where uh, we see wars like uh, what is happening in Ukraine and just happening in Gaza uh, most recently. They happen all too often, don't they? And uh, people suffer so much. But it's not just those world events. Uh, we see terrible things happen in uh, people's private lives. Uh, you might have read the story of the murder of that young uh, gym teacher at the school in Sydney. And those are the kind of things that happen behind closed doors far too often in households. But Nahum wants to assure us that God sees, God cares, God will act. The guilty will be called to account. This is comforting, but I think the sobering truth uh, that, we, that we grapple with is that many people uh, that we know and love are caught up in Nineveh and Babylon. Uh, the monsters uh, that make the news, uh, perhaps we can be glad uh, for their judgment, but in fact all humans are caught up in the evil systems and empires of our world. All uh, of us contribute to the great sins and evils or with our maybe even only private sins and evils. Uh, for all of us, unless we are saved, unless we can find refuge in Jesus, we'll be there with Babylon and Nineveh experiencing uh, judgment, the judgment of God. It's hard for us to accept, I think, because we don't always see uh, or experience the consequences of other people's personal sins, and so they can seem insignificant. But as we think about the judgment of God, we can trust that the God who is willing to actually experience judgment himself is a God who will not judge anyone who is undeserving. This is not a God who judges with unnecessary harshness. The jealousy and vengeance of God are not vindictive or cruel. Uh, he's not out there looking for more people to punish or anything like that. God is wanting to save people. He's wanting to be a refuge for people, to bring justice for victims, to rid our world of evil so that there can be a perfect new creation where there is no sin and no evil, where there aren't uh, uh, empires like Nineveh or Babylon uh, who create uh, so much oppression and pain and suffering. That is what God's judgment is about. And as we reflect on this message uh, tonight there are two things I want to just take away in terms of thinking about how we personally might respond. The first thing uh, where we can respond to this message of uh, about God's uh, vengeance and justice is that we don't have to take revenge when we are mistreated. Romans chapter 12 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to revenge, I will repay. The reason that we can love our enemies as Jesus called us to, the reason that we do turn the other cheek and endure mistreatment without bitterness, is because we know that justice is secure in God's hands. I think perhaps there's a perception uh, in our community that if you believe in a judging God, uh, that means you want to actually uh, execute God's judgment in our world now. But in reality, a belief in judgment is the only foundation for forgiveness 
and grace in our world now. When you think about Boniface all those years ago as he laid down his sword as he was attacked by the pirates, he didn't do that because uh, he didn't believe in a God of justice. He did it because he believed that even if he was treated unjustly, uh, he was in God's hands who would bring justice for him. Uh, Theologian Miroslav Volf, uh, he was a Christian theologian who uh, experienced some of the terrible uh, violence in uh, in the Balkans uh, about 20 years, 30 years ago. And uh, this is what he wrote about uh, this topic. He says, The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. If you want to say... We shouldn't be involved in violence. You have to believe that God is the only legitimate person who can do violence. And so whether it's on a personal, in our personal relationships, whether it's on a national scale, if we're Christians who believe that God will avenge evil, we do not have to seek revenge ourselves. That doesn't mean there's not times to resist evil, especially for the sake of others. But it does mean that we can follow Jesus' teaching. We can turn the other cheek. We can love our enemies in a unique way because we know that God uh, will uh, bring justice for evil. So I want to ask you, is that attitude reflected in your relationships, in your thoughts about politics? Do you leave vengeance up to God or is it something uh, that you want to take into your own hands uh, and see happen now? The second thing I want us to take away from Nahum is that we really need to be inviting people to find refuge in Jesus. A sinful, messed up world is going to face God's judgment. Without Christ, every single one of us is caught up in that judgment. Every single one of us is an object of wrath because of our sinful attitudes and actions. And so we want to invite people to come and find refuge in Jesus. And what a great time of year to be doing that. I've just heard tonight, haven't we, some wonderful opportunities. Uh, We have our Discover Church in just two weeks uh, to do that. Uh, We have uh, our Christmas dinner in a month. Uh, We have the Kids Club in six weeks. We have our Christmas service in two months. So many things that we can say to people, hey, come along and hear about Jesus, uh, the Jesus who came to earth and died for you to be a refuge for you. Uh, If you know people who perhaps aren't going to come to church because they don't like the kind of thing, uh, why don't you offer to read the Bible with them? Remember how we looked at the Word one-to-one at our uh, uh, church camp this year and uh, an easy way to invite someone to read John's Gospel and meet Jesus for themselves. Uh, The message of Nahum reminds us that the task of sharing the good news and inviting people to find refuge in Christ is urgent. It reminds us that the Lord is good, He's a refuge in times of trouble and He cares for those who trust in Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we uh, do find it hard to consider uh, the side of your character that brings justice against evil. In the end, different ways we see the great necessity of that in our world. And so we pray that you would help us to uh, trust the, the goodness of this part of your character. 
And we pray that as we think about uh, your justice and the fact that uh, you will call people to account for the evil things that we do, we pray that that would help us uh, to follow the teaching of Jesus, to to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek, uh, to be people who are full of grace and forgiveness uh, because uh, we know that it is yours to avenge. Father, we also pray that we might be people who share the good news of Jesus. We long to see uh, many more people know the refuge uh, that Christ provides through his death. Uh, to find refuge from judgment, uh, to find forgiveness uh, for their sins and uh, to find uh, the peace of uh, lives of worshipping you. And so uh, give us uh, uh, motivation and boldness in sharing, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.